family, would you come up and lead us in prayer for the persecuted church? Good morning. I'm going to share a little bit of insight. That's all right with you, Aaron. The persecution comes in many forms, meaning that me being a Native American, I'm the only one saved out of my family, brothers and sisters, mother, father, grandparents, and relatives. When I first accepted the Lord, I had a really good mentor who asked me a lot of questions in his office. He identified with me as I explained to him what kind of life I came coming out of to accept the Lord. And he told me, your first enemies are going to be your immediate family your own brothers and sisters, your mother, father, grandparents, and your relatives. And sure enough, that happened. I was approached in a very strong way, verbally, by some relatives. Because I forsook and gave up the teachings and the beliefs that I was brought up on. I walked away from that, all that, to accept my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as my personal Savior. But one thing I learned is to love them in return because the Bible says, love your enemies, pray for your enemies, Give them water and give them food if they're hungry and thirsty. Today, the world is changing so much that there's a time coming when Christians are going to be persecuted. And the word persecution, I don't know if some of you know, but the Bible is divided in the Old and New Testament. The Old Testament is translated in Hebrew. The New Testament is translated in Greek. So in the Greek word, persecuted means the oko, meaning persecution. And I was, as I was looking up this word in the book of John, chapter 15, verse 18 through 20, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as he was sitting in the upper room with the disciples, he said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were in the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, says the Lord, they will also persecute you. And then later on, Apostle Paul is instructing young Timothy. In Timothy 3.12, it says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. When I read this verse, it makes me think about myself. Am I really living a godly life? Have I committed my whole life, my mind, my conscience, that the Lord is in control of it? If I am, if you are, you will suffer persecution. You can offend anybody or sharing the gospel with them. I find that out. It's true. So come to think about that. That Aaron mentioned in the movie we just saw, the film. There's a lot of brothers and sisters out there in the world who have given up the comfort the convenience of a life in the home. They've given them everything to go out into the world, unknown countries, unknown people, unknown communities, villages. They've endured, they're enduring persecution. Yes, some of them are being murdered. all the way to the end. And then there are some that we've never heard about that are out there too. And we need to think about them. We live in a world where prayer is so convenient that we're so busy praying for brand new vehicles, brand new homes, God, please help me pay the spiel off. And we don't remember our fellow brothers and sisters who are suffering for the Lord. At that, let's all bow our head and pray to God. Dear Lord God, Heavenly Father, because you are a triune God, we come before you and look to you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, by the will of the Holy Spirit, by faith and believing according to your word. And Father, now we pray for our brothers and sisters that are out there in the world. 
dealing with hardship, being persecuted, and enduring it. Be with each and every one of them, Heavenly Father. Some are known to us and some are not. So, Heavenly Father, we pray for them. Not only that, Heavenly Father, you teach us also to love our enemies because they are humans too. And when Christ was suffering on the cross, his last word was, forgive them, or they, they don't know what they're doing. That's the reason why we have to love our enemies. If they need water, give them water. Food, food. That they, they can come to know you too, Heavenly Father. And now thank you for this time that we come to think about this. Heavenly Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Why are you a Christian? Is it because you've looked at some other Christians and you saw that they had a life that you thought was nice and you thought, I could go for that kind of lifestyle. I, I want that kind of comfort that I see some other Christians with. Why are you a Christian? Is it because it's true? Because you have studied the gospel? You've looked at the philosophical arguments. You've looked at the historical arguments. You've felt God's presence in your life and you've said, this is truth and therefore I will believe it. If that's the case, then do you live it? Do you live your faith out? In America, it is very easy to confess belief, but not to live the belief out. It's very easy actually to do the opposite of what they did in that film. You know, we, we accept Christ, we, we put our faith and trust in Christ because we want to live our life. We want the best life now. And so we put our faith and trust in Christ looking for the promise of comfort, looking for the promise that we won't actually have to sacrifice, that we can just live this amazing life in the comfort of America with the spoils of everything we have at our fingertips. And so even though we might confess that it's true, do we really live that way? That's what we're going to talk about today as we continue our series, Hopeful. It is because we are full of hope as Christians. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what trials or tribulation or pain this world can throw at us, we have hope. And we have hope because we know in the end, when all is said and done, Jesus is victorious. And so it might not feel that way now. It might feel... like we're losing the battle. It might feel painful. 
And for the majority of people who do not have hope, when those pains, when those tribulations come, oftentimes come with it a change of philosophy, a change of worldview. But for Christians, we can be full of hope because we know that in the end, no matter what happens, Jesus wins. So that's why we, are, are, we titled this series Hopeful. We started studying through the book of Revelation and we've been walking through the seven letters to the seven churches in the first of four visions. We're to the final letter to the church in Laodicea. So that's Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we've got a letter here written to Laodicea. And what do we know about Laodicea? To the church, angel of the church in Laodicea. What do we know about it? We know that it was uh, about 45 miles, let's go to the next slide, 45 miles southwest of Phil, uh, Philadelphia. So we've had this like super zoomed in map. Today we've backed it out. And I wanted to back it out a little bit so you could see this is Italy here. We've got the Mediterranean Sea here. Right about here is the Black Sea. Uh, here is the Dead Sea, so that gives Jerusalem right about here. The letters originated in Patmos. This would be the uh, route, the postal route that they would take. So first we've got the church in Ephesus, then we go through all the other cities, and finally Laodicea right about here. This is in what is modern-day Turkey. I know we have a couple people here that have lived in modern-day Turkey, and so they were very excited about walking through, especially in particular, Laodicea, because they, they understand the geography that's going on here. So, it was about 45 miles southwest of Philadelphia. Uh, it was uh, the, the most important city of what's considered the Tri-City area. So, Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis were the three cities in this Tri-Syria area, Tri-City area, Laodicea was the most important, and it was the wealthiest of these cities. It had a banking center in it. The banking center, center created a lot of wealth, so it was incredibly wealthy. It was also known for its soft, raven-black wool. So it was this very dark wool that was incredibly soft. It was very sought after. This also brought in a lot of wealth. So it was a wealthy, well-to-do city 
It was very important. But it did have two major drawbacks. The first major drawback is that it was just like uh, Philadelphia and some of the other cities we studied, it was also built on a fault line, meaning that they struggled with earthquakes. And in 60 AD, an earthquake absolutely destroyed the city. And just like the other cities, Rome came in and offered to help rebuild the city. But Laodicea was so wealthy and so independent that they turned Rome's offer down. Could you imagine our city being so wealthy that when the floods came this last summer or a wildfire comes in and the federal government declares an emergency so that we can get federal funding, we say, nah, federal government, we got this. You just back up because we are self-sufficient. We are independent. We don't need the federal government's help. In fact, forget you, federal government. We don't want you here. That's kind of what Laodicea was saying. They were saying, look, we are self-sufficient. We don't like you button in our business, Rome. We are independent people who can totally do things without your help. So they were very wealthy. They were very independent. And the second drawback is they were originally built as a military strategic town. Not a long, long time ago in ancient days, most cities were built for two reasons. Or they were built with two aspects in mind, I should say. One was security. So you wanted to be on like the top of a mountain. Jerusalem is an excellent example. Easily defendable when you're on the top of a mountain. But the problem with that is oftentimes you don't have access to clean water, which is another essential for a city in those days. So, Jerusalem was a great city, it was easily defendable, and it had a fresh spring coming up. There were several other cities like that. Laodicea was not that city. Although it was easily defendable, it did not have its own water source. So they had to pipe in water from about six miles away. They built these fantastic aqueducts that, built the, that brought this water in, but these big aqueducts were big pipes, and the, the water is sitting out for enemies to come and poison, or for the sun just to warm up, and then you'd have some really nasty calcified mineral water that was a little disgusting. So those were the two major drawbacks of Laodicea. But other than that, it was a very wealthy, prosperous, independent city. That is the cultural context in which this letter is written. The church in Laodicea reflected the culture of Laodicea. They had become a wealthy, independent, self-sufficient, we don't need anyone's help, we can do it all on our own church. So the angel of the church, the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. The words of the Amen. So now Christ is going to give us a description of himself before he enters into the letter. And just as the other letters, the description of Christ connects with the culture of Laodicea. So write the words of the Amen. Amen means truly, or I agree, or it is true. One of my kids learned that, and so he quit saying amen after dinner or prayer. He would just say, I agree. 
and we all would have a good laugh. But uh, that's kind of what it means. It means I agree, or this is the truth, or it is true. Uh, Jesus was known for saying amen and amen, meaning truly, truly. And what that was doing was emphasizing the statement that he said was, was absolute truth. So Jesus would go around saying amen and amen. Truly, truly, this is the truth. Pay attention because Jesus was revealing something to you that you absolutely needed to hear. Now what's interesting about this is it's not just amen, but the amen. That definite article in there means it's not just truly, truly, or so it is, or I agree. It means that this is the truth. And this this became a title for Jesus, meaning that Jesus is the truth. There is no relativism. It's not your truth and my truth and that person over there's truth. It is Jesus is the actualization of truth. He is the fulfillment of truth. He is the truth. If you want to know and understand reality, study Jesus. If you want to understand what's really going on, study Jesus. So when Jesus was uh, before Pontius Pilate for trial, and, and Pontius Pilate says, what is the truth? What is truth? He threw that question out with the greatest with the greatest information on truth right in front of him. So he is the amen. He is the truth. And not only is the truth, he's also the faithful and true witness. Faithful means to remain committed even in hardships. To remain committed, to be faithful. We talk about faithfulness in like marriage, for instance, and everybody loves a good wedding, right? You gather together, you, you talk about commitment, but it's easy to be committed at a wedding, isn't it? It's easy to be committed because you've been dating, you've been having all these good feelings for each other, you, and the wedding is a buildup, and you're, you know, you're, you've got a whole huge party just for you, just for the two of you, and you stand in front of everyone and you say, I'm gonna remain committed, which is really easy to do because you're about to go eat cake and dance. And then the next day you go on your honeymoon and you get to your hotel and you realize that the bathroom wall is only a half wall and things are about to get real because you're about to realize something about your partner that you had never realized before. (laughs) That's when commitment starts. It's not starting when it's easy. It's easy to be committed when things are easy. It's when you realize something that there's a half wall between you and your spouse as they need to take care of business. It's when you get home or on the way home and your spouse is hounding you about their passport. How about when your spouse forgets something that you knew was important? How about when you start to realize your spouse chews with their mouth open? And they're just throwing those chips in and crunching away right in your ear. And you're like, I'm just trying to watch the movie. Those are the places where commitment really starts. It's easy to be committed when it's easy. When you're up in front of everyone and you're in love. It's another thing to remain committed even when they begin to annoy you. That's commitment. Faithful. 
Jesus is faithful. He's faithful to you even when you're in rebellion against Him. Even when you're shaking your fist at Him because you want to do your things your way, not His way. He still remains faithful. And He remains faithful to His Word. Even when you throw His Word away, even when you try to undermine His Word, He remains faithful to His Word, He remains faithful to you, and He remained faithful to God. Even as He was going to the cross, He remained faithful to God. So He is the faithful and true witness. Witness here means that He is testifying to who God is. He is the greatest expert on who God is. He revealed God fully and totally to us. He is the truth. He is faithful to God and He reveals God to us. Do you want to understand who God is? Study Jesus. So He is the faithful and true witness. The beginning of God's creation. The beginning of God's creation. This term beginning is arche and it means uh, to, to be the originator of or the cause of and therefore the ruler of. Some of your translations will even say the, the cause of God's creation or the origination of God's creation. That's what this word arcane means. It's not just the beginning of, but it is the cause of. This world came into existence because of Jesus. This world came into existence because Jesus caused it to become into existence. It, it, it originated out of Jesus. And because Jesus is the cause, because Jesus is the originator, he is also the ruler of. The church at Laodicea needed to recognize this because they thought they were independent. They thought they could do things on their own. They owned, they amassed all this wealth. And they thought it was theirs. And what he is essentially saying is that he is the truth, he is faithful, and he is the ruler of everything you own. I was just talking with a guy this week about tithing. And there's this rule that we like to take from the Old Testament of give 10%. It's, I think we like this rule because it's easy. What do I mean by that? I mean, I know the exact amount I need to give, and I can check that off, and I can say, hey, I'm righteous because I give 10%. And then I keep the 90%, and that is mine. This is actually flying in the face of tithing. Now, don't get me wrong. I like, I like 10% because it's a nice rule. But what happens is we go with the 10%, we check it off, and we don't actually think about it anymore. And what God is saying is everything you own, every single bit of it, your car, your bank account, your house, your clothing, it actually all belongs to God. And we shouldn't just give 10%. We need to wrestle with what does God want me to do with what he has given me. This is God's. God, what will you have me do with your stuff? And it actually takes a lot more thought than just checking the 10% mark. It's being intentional with your paycheck. And there will be some times when God says, you know what, you, you don't even realize that you have a catastrophe coming, but I do. And I think that now you need to actually take a little, you need to just save a little bit more. And there will be other times when God says, you know what? 
I'm about to bless you in ways you don't even know, and I want you to bless others far more than 10%. But it's going to take time, and it's going to take you wrestling with what God has called you to do. So he is the originator, he is the cause, and therefore the ruler of all. You don't actually own anything. God does. And he's letting you be a steward of what God has. So that's the description of who, God, of who Jesus is. And then he goes into the letter. I know your works. So he's going to describe their deeds to them now. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. And so here's an accusation. You're neither cold nor hot. Now, to understand this properly, we need to understand some geography. And we need to understand that Laodicea didn't have their own water source. So it's being piped in. It was lukewarm. It was pretty disgusting. But about 10 miles to the east was Colossae. And they were known for their refreshing springs. So, once again, in those days, you built kind of wherever you could have a water source. A lot of the water sources weren't exactly fresh or refreshing. There were a lot of water sources that were fairly lukewarm. We're very spoiled. We get to turn on the water, and we get to decide whether it's cold or, or whether it's hot. I'm really curious, just quickly, does anybody prefer lukewarm water? You're like... Let me just turn on the cold and the hot together. I just want nice Luke. Anybody? No. Nobody is like turning on the cold and the hot together. Lester. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, you can confess it, man. There's no judgment here. But most of us just crank on the cold water, right? And then we, some of us even put extra ice to make it really refreshing. So, th that was Colossae. It was known for its water source being refreshing. And then about six miles to the north, you had Hierapolis, which was known... Oh yeah, there's our map, I forgot. Yeah, so, uh, so it was known for having these hot springs. In fact, in Laodicea, you could look over six miles to the north, and you could actually see some of the hot springs had these waterfalls that with their mineral deposits just became these beautiful sites. In fact, if you go home and Google Hierapolis hot springs, you will see these beautiful pictures of these hot springs in Hierapolis. And so they were known for their hot water that had healing properties. So you've got these healing waters and these cool, refreshing waters, but Laodicea has neither. And spiritually speaking, they had neither as well. So they were neither spiritually refreshing, nor were they spiritually healing. Instead, they were lukewarm. So he continues, So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the point that he's getting at here is you have become so independent, you have taken yourself so far, removed yourself so far from God, that you are no longer allowing yourself to be used by God. And because you're no longer allowing yourself to be used by God, you're neither going to be spiritually refreshing to people, nor will you be spiritually healing to people. You just kind of exist. You've been com become comfortable You've become independent, self-sufficient, and you no longer look towards God, so you're no longer spiritually beneficial. You're just lukewarm. 
and as the result, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, this term spit here is kind of nice. The, the Greek word is emeo, and it means to vomit, to throw up. Now, I don't know about you, but I would much rather my child spit than throw up. The spit is a whole lot easier to clean, and it's a lot less stinky. What God is saying here is that it's not just like he's going to bring you in, swish you around, and spit a little bit. You actually cause that gag reflex to kick into gear. It is so disgusting. You have wandered so far away from God. You have become so comfortable and so independent, so far removed, that you have become spiritually useless, and you are causing God's gag reflex to kick in. That's what he's getting at. That's the imagery that he's painting for us. And then he gives us the reason why. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. So they're describing the self-sufficiency that they have. They They don't need God. They don't need spiritual healing. They don't need to be spiritually refreshed. They are rich. They've prospered. They have everything they need. They didn't believe that they needed God any longer. I think Americans can relate. We are rich. We have prospered. We've become self-sufficient. And we claim to be happy. We claim that we don't need God, and yet we are more unhappy, we are more depressed, we are more self-medicated than at any other time in American history. Americans, in all honesty, are miserable. But we're so busy self-medicating, that we don't realize how miserable we have become. In fact, we don't even like to be bored. Years ago, there's this uh, band called 21 Pilots that I absolutely loved, and they had this song that I just could so relate to because it was called Car Radio, and it was all about how his car radio was stolen. And now he has to drive in silence, and he hates it because while he's driving in silence, he had to actually think about things. See, we're so busy entertaining ourselves that we can't even stand being bored. How often are you standing in line somewhere or like you're out on a date with your spouse and they go to the bathroom and you just pull out your phone and right away you start scrolling because you can't even allow your brain for one second to be occupied by boredom. So you have to fill it with something and as a result, we stop thinking about the deep things of life. And there is pain in your life that you've never dealt with. There's grief in your life that you've never dealt with. But you've just been so busy entertaining yourself. You've been so busy staying busy that you have stopped to think about the grief in your life. I'll tell you, years ago when my first wife died, one of the best things I've ever done is I got rid of every form of entertainment in my house. Radio, computer, TV. And every night I went home to quiet. 
And in that quiet, I had to wrestle with the grief. I had to. There was nothing else to do but to sit in quiet and wrestle with the grief. And too often, we don't sit in quiet and wrestle with the grief. We just stay busy. We just stay occupied. We just stay entertained. And as a result, we think we're happy, but we're really miserable. So he goes on to describe, this is what you think you are, but not realizing. So they think they're rich, they think they're prosperous, they think they need nothing, they think they're happy, yet they don't even realize that you are wretched, and we're going to have five adjectives that describe them. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The first two, let's go to the next slide. The first two, wretched and pitiable, kind of go together. They kind of mean something similar, so... Oops. That's not the slide. Is there another slide? Nope. All right. We didn't, we didn't insert the right slide, I guess. That's all right. So anyways, a wretched and pitiable both mean to have miserable lives. All right? So that's what he's getting at there. You, you, you think that you're happy, but really you have these miserable lives. And then poor means to be spiritually bankrupt. So your spirit, you, you have these miserable lives. You're spiritually bankrupt. Blind means that they don't even see how spiritually bankrupt they are. And naked means that they are exposed. Although they are known in Laodicea for having this beautiful black soft wool and that they can cover up their nakedness, he's saying is that you are really exposed. You're miserable, you're spiritually bankrupt, and you can't even see it, and you're exposed and you don't even realize it. That's what he's saying to them. So what's the solution? Verse 18, I counsel you. What he's saying is, I'm giving you advice. And in America, we better listen to this advice. Because we are very similar to Laodicea. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. Now what he's playing at here is this banking center, and they were incredibly wealthy, and they had lots of gold. But the key term here is refined by fire. This is symbolic for trials, for tribulation. That we could count it all joy when we go through trials of all kinds. Because God is going to grow us, He is going to mature us in these trials. Essentially, it's time to start living the assignment God has called you to. Time to start living out the faith. It's one thing to go to church on Sundays. It's another thing to be involved in the faith. And as you become involved, as you become involved in the church, as you become involved in sharing the gospel, you begin to be refined by God. It is through that involvement that God refines you so that you may be rich. And what he means there is spiritually rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness not, may not be seen. So the white garment would be in contrast to the, the black garments that they were known for. And what he's referencing here is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So recognize that you are exposed. 
So many of us don't even realize that we are exposed, that God sees through every mask that you put on. You may think that you have earned your righteousness. You may think that you can earn holiness, but God sees through it. There's no amount of works that you can do to earn your righteousness. There's no amount of works that you can do to make yourself holy. So recognize that you are not holy until you put your faith and trust in Christ, and then He makes you holy. He puts on that white garment for you. And solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, Laodicea was known for its medical school, uh, and they had developed a uh, a solve, they, they called it Phrygian powder, that people could anoint their eyes, and it would heal some eye uh illnesses. So once again, he's playing on this idea that, that you have this physical salve that, that, can, that can cure your physical eyes, and yet you're spiritually blind, so you need to buy the spiritual salve for, for yourself from God so you can actually see yourself the way God sees you. And what I think 18 is really coming down to is the gospel. The gospel, that is, recognize who you are. Recognize that without God, at some point in your life, you have rebelled against God, you've shaken your fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And because you have done that, you deserve death, you you deserve eternal separation from God. But God, being rich in love for you, came to this earth, and He paid the price for you. He paid the price for your rebellion, even as you were in rebellion. And so all you have to do to no longer be separated from God for eternity is to put your faith and trust in Him and say, God, I recognize that I have rebelled against you. I recognize that I've wanted to do things my own way. And as a result, I deserve death, but you came and you paid that price for me. And I recognize that you paid the price, you rose again, and I'm putting my trust in your work on the cross. And when you do that, you're no longer exposed because he wraps you in his righteousness. Your works no longer dictate who you are. It is Jesus who dictates who you are at that point. So that's what he's getting at with 18. I think it's, it's the gospel that he's giving them right there. And then he goes on, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And what he's saying here is that because he loves them, this those whom is kind of a general, and some of your translations will even say all those, but it's this like general term that God loves all in the earth, and because he loves them, he will reprove and discipline. This, this idea of reprove means to correct. So reprove and discipline means to correct behavior. So reprove is first recognizing wrong behavior and calling it out. The discipline then is to correct it, to change course. Now God's discipline is never punitive, meaning he never just does something, he never just disciplines you just because he wants to. It's always corrective. When God disciplines, it's to change course. It's very similar, and and he does it because he loves us. So it's very similar to how we might interact with our kids. If you never discipline your kid, you don't actually love your kid. That's a harsh statement, I know. But let's face it. 
Disciplining your kid is difficult, isn't it? I mean, man, it, it does not feel good all the time to discipline your kid. And you actually have to do stuff. It's so much easier just to let your kid get away with things, isn't it? At least for the time being, it is. I mean, when my kid calls another kid a name, it's so much easier for me to be like, just work it out amongst yourselves. Work it out amongst yourselves. I don't want to deal with you. It takes time, and it takes effort, and it takes energy for me to stop what I am doing and to address the issue. But if I love my kid, that's what I'll do. Because I don't want my kid to grow up to be a punk who can't have a healthy relationship. Because he never learned that you don't call people names. He never learned that you don't punch people and take things from them. So because we love our kids, we discipline our kids. Because God loves us, He disciplines us. And one of the, one of the most used ways that He disciplines us is He lets us feel the consequences of our sin. He lets us feel the natural consequences of our sin. He doesn't just come in and take those consequences away on a regular basis. He lets you feel it. Romans 8 talks about how God blessed us with futility. Futility, a blessing? That can't be. Well, he blessed us with the futility because it drives us back to him. When we recognize that our bent-up, crooked ways aren't producing, that drives us to God. When you feel pain in your life, that should be driving you to God. C.S. Lewis said, pain is a megaphone through which God speaks to the world. God is using that pain to drive you to Him. He may not be the cause of the pain. Oftentimes we are the cause of our own pain. But He'll use that pain to drive you to Him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And what he's getting at here is this is an invitation to a deep and fulfilling relationship. In antiquity, uh, mill times were a time where you would build relationship. If ever there was a, a broken relationship and you wanted to heal that relationship, you would invite them over for dinner. And you would sit and you would have a long dinner in which you would begin to rebuild that relationship. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's inviting you to a deep and fulfilling relationship with him. The Laodiceans had rejected that relationship. They thought that they could do it on their own. They thought that they didn't need Jesus anymore. And he's saying, stop and rebuild this relationship with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And this is, the Laodiceans thought that they could be the rulers. They, they rejected Rome. They thought they could be the ones to call the shots. And what he's saying is, you're not really the ones that get to call the shots. I am. But if you submit to me, then you get to participate in ruling with me. That's what he's getting at there. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Laodiceans, although called themselves a church, had become self-sufficient, independent, proud, and arrogant. They were wealthy, and although they confessed a faith in Christ, 
They didn't live their life as if they truly believed. In the 1800s, there was a philosopher named uh, Nietzsche. And he's famous for, in this book called The Gay Science that he wrote, he's famous for creating a character that's this madman who goes around yelling, God is dead! Christians, a lot of Christians know that quote. God is dead. And this madman, he's running around the city and he's yelling in those city markets, God is dead. And it is falling on deaf ears. Because people have already been living as though God is dead. And Christians, we hear that God is dead and we like to scoff and we like to say, Nietzsche didn't know what he was talking about. But do you live as though God is alive in your heart today? Do you live as though God is dead? Going about your business, doing your thing, day after day in the monotony of life? Or do you live a life that is self-sacrificial, every day dependent upon God? Do you live as if you've lost your life for the sake of Christ? Or are you still holding tight, white-knuckling your own life, pursuing comfort and entertainment, and living as though God is dead? Dear Lord, we thank you for this letter that you wrote to the church in Laodicea. We recognize that it could easily be a church or a letter to the church in America today. We love our independence. We love our self-sufficiency. And Lord, we love it so much that sometimes we neglect you. We've forgotten how to be dependent upon you, turning towards you, recognizing that you are the ruler of everything. Everything we have, Lord, is yours. Help us to live that way. In your name we pray. Amen.